Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church Podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and His church, grow in faith and understanding of God's Word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. You know, it's, been, it's been a little overwhelming this year for me as we see all of the cultural narratives that are coming for us, coming for our children, coming for our families, where enter, entertainment industry is no longer subtly pushing narratives in the background, but they are attacking us full force and being blatantly honest about how they're doing it. No longer concerned with entertaining us, rather concerned with conforming us into the image of the world. A government that is no longer interested in fighting for liberty, but would rather you conform to their pronouns or their perverse sex education. As a, as a parent, the realities of what the world is screaming at my children is overwhelming. It's never been easy to be a Christ follower, but it surely will not be easier than it is today, and today it's pretty difficult. But I don't, I don't know where you come into the morning this morning, but it's not lost on me that there are a variety of things that if we're honest this morning, that, that have us in a low place. Maybe for you this morning, the sin of your spouse has caused you crisis in your marriage. Maybe for you this morning, you, you long for children and you're unable to conceive. Maybe the children that you do have are not in love with the Lord in the way that you hoped they would be. And so the realities of their life are far from what you'd have prayed for. And unsure of what to do. Unsure of what to say. Where, where maybe did you could, you, could you have said something different and the thoughts overwhelm you? Maybe there's a sickness that's entered into your home or into your family and, and there's no hope for a cure. Maybe there's crisis and turmoil in your relationships. Your family is broken and you're just completely overwhelmed with how it's ever gonna get any better than it is right now. There's false accusations. There's no one to defend you. There's any number of circumstances in our life. Maybe this morning you're visiting us because there's turmoil where you're coming from unsure of what to do with seeking refuge in the things of the Lord. Maybe you're grieving the realities of your life today because your dreams and your realities don't, ma don't match. What you had prayed for and hoped for, your life looks nothing like it. I have a unique privilege and opportunity as a pastor to be able to stand with families as they face crisis. Just in these last few weeks, I was able to sit with a husband 
who's been married to his wife for the majority of his life, and she has been given a terminal diagnosis. And they're trying one last treatment to see if they can make this thing work. And as they sit together in their home, he's, he's in a place where there's just this deep sense of pain in him because his wife is hurting and he can't fix it. There's numerous stories like that through the last few years where sin has ravaged our homes, has, has reared its head, and we can't fix it. Now, man, I don't know if you're like me, but in the 10 years that my wife and I have been together, almost nine married, I'm still learning that when she shares problems with me, she doesn't want me to fix it. Not all the time. But as a husband, that's what I want to do. I want to fix it. I want to make it better. As a parent, when you see your children suffering and hurting, you want to fix it. You want to step into their world and fix it to, to prevent them from experiencing some kind of pain or hopelessness or despair. It, it's what we desire to keep the people we love from pain. And so when we're unable to do it, it leads us to the same place as the husband with a terminal wife, hopeless unsure of what to do, and waiting for God to do what only he can do. And there's so many places and positions that we find ourselves in life where that's exactly what we would boil it down to, unable to do anything to fix our situation, right? We know those situations where the only activity that we seem to muster just makes it worse. So how do we fix it? How do we fix it? If you have your copy of God's word with me or with you this morning, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. And as we come to the book of Ephesians, we're gonna find the apostle Paul and what we know about him and his present state from Acts chapter 28 is that he has been falsely accused and arrested wrongly in Jerusalem. He's been turned over to the Romans and the Roman authorities have met with him and they've heard him and they've said there's no fault in this man. And when they go to release him, the Jewish people say, no, keep him. Keep him there, wrongfully imprisoned, but keep him. And so, so too Paul, in a place hopeless, helpless, in despair, waiting for God to do what only he can do, we find Paul joyful in the Lord and longing for the church. And so as he writes to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to them about the glory of God, the nature of God, the nature of our sin condition, and the realities of salvation made possible through Jesus Christ and what it means for us to live as believers in the world. And so as we read through Paul's letter this morning, we're going to find Paul speaking to a couple things. One, he's going to talk about things in the physical realm, but he's also going to talk about things in the spiritual realm. And so we need to be aware of that, that there is a spiritual deadness that we're going to talk about. And then there's going to be realities of living in that spiritual deadness. 
right? But I want you to pay close attention before we go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. And we're going to see Paul's address to the people in Ephesus and how he opens this letter. And what's important for us to know is if I am a, a reader of this letter, I know exactly who Paul is. The church in Ephesus knew exactly who Paul was, that he was a murderous killer of Christians who had experienced this radical transformation and was now the greatest advocate for Christians on the earth. They are extremely aware as they are reading this letter that Paul has experienced this radical transformation. And so it's not lost on them that when somebody comes in contact with a holy God, they look different. That's the expectation that they're reading this with. And Paul says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace is something that we're going to speak to here very shortly in, in chapter 2. But grace to tell them, hey, you remember, you are no longer under the law. Peace to you. You are no longer in rebellion. But through Jesus Christ, God has made peace with you. And so he's, he's opening the letter with that address to remind them of that truth. And so as we arrive in chapter 2, as we arrive in chapter 2, what we see is Paul calling them to remember who they are apart from Christ. Who they are apart from Christ. Now remember, the spiritual realities and the physical realities. And so here's what God's word says, beginning in verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. All right, there's this reality of being spiritually dead on arrival in this world. Spiritually dead on arrival because of the first man in the garden and man and woman being separated from God's presence the fact that you and I were not born in the Garden of Eden tells us that we were born separated from a holy God. Born in our sin, born an enemy, condemned at birth because of our inability to measure up to God's standard for holiness. But pay attention to, to the verb used here. Right? Paul uses a very specific word, verb. He uses the word walked. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, what walked tells me is that it is a practice, right? It is an active thing that I do, right? Is 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who practices sinning also practices lawlessness, and lawlessness is a sin, right? By our nature, we walk in rebellion willfully in disobedience to God. It is a willful walk in rebellion to God's law and rebellion towards God. And Paul's talking about more than just an occasional mistake, right? We all have those preferences for one thing or another. And so what Paul's talking about is not just the occasional mistake. It is a walking, a willful lifestyle of rebellion towards God. Our sin condition, spiritually, we are dead on arrival but out of that spiritual deadness, we are willfully walking in rebellion on this earth, preferring things other than the Lord in our very nature. 
choosing to follow something else entirely. And so as we're talking about walking in our trespasses and sins, dead, verse two continues, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now the Ephesian church was very familiar with this idea of the spirits of the air. Right? It, was, it was a very pagan culture, and so in their culture, that's the way they would refer to the spirits as being in the air. And so what this is referring to, Paul is calling to their mind, not just this some form of a spirit, he is specifically directing Satan. He's identifying Satan as the spirit that we follow. Among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, right? Born enemies of God, right? Because we are not in the garden, separated from God, out of his, out of his presence, spiritually dead on arrival, but physically walking in rebellion willfully towards God, preferring things other than the Lord, choosing to follow the world standards, right? Which, which we know are in our face, all the time, dominated by the lust of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, right? Choosing to do what we think is good in our own eyes. Dominated by doing what makes us happy. That's not a new problem. All of these things that we're facing today, it's not a new problem. We just have social media to tell us about it. We're more connected than we've ever been, yet we're less connected than we've ever been at the same time, aware of what the world is selling us because Satan is cunning. And what Paul says is not only is Satan cunning, but he is active in the world. The spirit that is active, Satan is active in the sons of disobedience. And his desire for us, according to what we know in scripture and other places, right, Satan's desire for you this morning as you sit in your seat is to steal you, kill you, and destroy you. It is to keep you in your spiritual deadness, but not just to keep you there, but to keep you, from, to keep you touching dead things, to keep you going back to the things that make you happy that are dead and mean nothing for you for eternity. Dominated by doing what's happy, we carry out the desires of our body and our mind, and verse three says, and are by nature, by our nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, as I'm reading this as, as the church in Ephesus, I'm probably thinking, man, okay, I'm spiritually dead on arrival. I got you, separated from God. I willfully choose to walk in rebellion towards God. I got you. I don't think it can get any worse than that. No, it can, church. It says, by our very nature, By our very nature, we are children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. Paul's getting at that this spiritual death is more than a temporary diagnosis. It is a permanent condition. Right? It's more than the impulse that we have to rebel. It is who we are at the core of our being. Children deserving of full punishment from God and full separation from him for eternity in hell. In and of ourselves and apart from God, we are desperately and hopelessly lost like the rest of mankind. And because of that, we stand condemned before a holy God.
the situation that Paul writes about is bleak. We are without life. We are without hope of life. And we are without potential. This is what Paul's after. Paul's after the fact that this lostness that we have is more than just a lack of knowledge about God. It is a total lack of ability towards God. And this lostness apart from Christ is worse than any hopelessness that you can experience on this earth. Whatever situation you're in, the reality of your lostness is far greater. No one can escape their lostness on their own. Right? Any hope that we have for our problem of lostness has to come from outside of us. I tell students all the time, it's like if you have a fish at home and the fish jumps out of the bowl, it has no hope to get back in. All it can hope for is that the master comes home, finds it before it dies, it picks it up and puts it back in its bowl. The fish's greatest hope is that it is acted upon by someone who can help it. We are not much different. The state of man apart from God is hopeless and it is awaiting a resolution to the sin condition. And in our moment of hopelessness, just like the husband at the edge of the bed, all that he can do and all that we can do is wait for the Lord to do what only he can do. The gospel in its simplest form cannot be understood as good news until it is understood. Our nature is understood as bad news. We can't understand the gospel as good until we have the reality of what's bad. That's why Paul begins with talking about this sin and this death and this separation that we have from God. Because hope can only be seen from a position of hopelessness, it is in that place of hopelessness that we sit and wait for what only God can do. I mean, how would you say that a dead man walks? He doesn't. He must be carried. And so verse 4, Paul begins to flip the script in a dramatic way. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ, for it is by grace you have been saved. We look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, but God shows his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? While we were dead, Christ died for us. By our nature, we are dead. But God, because of his nature, made us alive. It is in our death that the enemy of God is brought near. Through the death of Jesus Christ by mercy and by grace through faith. And, and it's not like, what are we saved from? I, I think we, we think about being saved from this, this place, right? This, this place of torment and hell. But what we need to understand is like, hell is a very real place that we are very deserving of being a member to. 
and attending for all of eternity. But the worst part about hell is not the fire. It's not the suffering. It is that we are separated from a holy God for eternity. And what stokes the fires of hell is the very breath of God. It is the knowledge that God exists and my complete inability to be a part of him. It is experiencing the torment of, of a masterful God and an all-powerful God experiencing that forever. And so what we are saved from is God himself. And the only person that can save us from God himself is God himself. We are saved from God for God, by God. The dead man doesn't walk from rebellion into righteousness. He is rescued And he is carried on the road that has only been traveled by Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have for life in the midst of death is the one God-man Jesus Christ who walked into death on our place and rose to conquer it forever. Watch what he did here. Not only does he defeat death and raise to life, verse 6, and he raises us. He raises us with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Is the reality that when we could do nothing, he carried us. He acted upon us, right? He raises us with him and he seats us in fellowship with him. So why does he do it? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. God's motivation for doing this is his glory and his love for you. God's motivation for mercy is his self. He desires to be in fellowship with you. And so it is both for his glory and for your good. Right, And it is for by grace, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. Right, Church, we contribute nothing to our salvation. But what costs us nothing does not come cheap. In June, we had a party at our house for for Hazel's second birthday party, and Kristen and I have a very different opinion of how many people can fit in our living room. So we agreed that we would have this party, and we would invite this amount of people, and we would do it outside, and it would be nice. It would be a pool party, it'd be outside, be in the rain, and and it rained. I mean, poured. And you don't know how claustrophobic you are until 40 people are up in your living room. (laughs) Which is probably as big as some of your bedrooms. Just saying. And as soon as the sun broke out, the kids went outside. And I don't blame them. I was right out there with them. I told Kristen, you host inside, I'm getting out of here. But we have a storm door on the front of our house. It's a glass storm door, and it has one of those, uh, you open it up, and it has the little arm on it where you slide the thing, and it keeps it open. But we had several kids at the party who couldn't wrap their head around the fact that it needed to stay open, that it was done on purpose, 
So they just kept shoving that thing closed. And I kept going out there saying, hey, it's, leave it. It's fine. And then you'd hear that thing. I'm like, oh. And the party ended and everybody left. And I'm, I go to open the door and set the arm so I can take my tables and everything outside. And the door is just broken. That arm, the bolts are bent up. The arm's not, it doesn't even work anymore. And I can remember being just angry. And my initial thought was, man, I didn't break this, but I still got to pay for it. And I think that's true about the way that the Lord views us, right? God didn't do anything to break it. But he's the one that has to pay for it. We contribute nothing. But what costs us nothing does not come cheap. Right? Tim Keller says that if salvation is afforded to me because of my contribution, then God can ask, cannot ask anything of me because I've contributed. But if I am saved by grace, there is nothing that he cannot ask of me. There's nothing that he cannot demand of me. There's nothing that he cannot set as truth. And once we understand the gravity of our lostness apart from Christ, and yet also the reality of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ, that fact that he gave himself holy for us should lead us to give ourselves holy to him. The fact that the God of the universe did not hold back from you should lead you to the place of not holding back from him. In verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. Now, some of your Bibles, the translation may say craftsmanship, handiwork, masterpiece, right? You are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is, again, that verb walked. Remember, the, the church in Ephesus is very aware of the reality of Paul's life. Once a killer of Christians, now the greatest advocate for Christians. They, they have heard and they have bared witness to this testimony that Paul has come in contact with a holy God and he has walked away a completely different person. And what we've seen illustrated in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 Paul is speaking to that same reality both for you and for me. The reality that we were once choosing to willfully walk in rebellion towards God, but now through, mercy, through the mercy of God by the grace afforded us of Jesus Christ, we walk willfully in good works. Right? We don't do good works to earn God. Remember, we can't earn salvation, right? If I could earn it, I could lose it. And I would lose it every time. And so the reality then is from spiritual death and children deserving of wrath by our nature, God in his nature has now completely changed our nature. In the most radical of ways, from death until life, when we could do nothing, he acted upon us. Walking in rebellion now created to walk in righteousness. And so then the question then becomes, well, how then does one walk in righteousness? And Paul's intent in writing this letter is both the, the, the glory of God, the nature of our salvation, the nature of our sin, 
and how it is that we are to walk in righteousness with one another. And so Paul doesn't leave that as something that he doesn't answer for us. And quite honestly, never does the Bible leave anything open for discussion. And so we find, as Paul's talking through this, a little bit later in Ephesians 5, he's going to answer that question of what are these good works? How does the dead man go from walking in rebellion to righteousness? He is rescued. And now that he stands here because of Jesus Christ, how does he begin to walk in his righteous good works? Ephesians 5 answers that question. Beginning in verse 8, it says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Dead in sin, walking in willful rebellion, but because of God and his mercy, by Jesus Christ, by grace, walking in righteousness. So these explicit instructions, if I could just break them down really simply, would be this. Take no part in the willful rebellion in which you once walked. It's the reality of walking completely away, repenting of that and walking away, exposing instead that sin to the light. Pay close attention how you walk. And as believers in fellowship with other believers, we also ought to pay attention to how others are walking. Make the best use of our time because the days are evil and the devil is good at his job. He's active. Be filled with the Spirit, fellowship together, encourage one another, and submit to one another. And as we call out sin in each other's lives, may we submit to one another as we ultimately submit to Jesus Christ in gratitude and in joy towards God for the ability to do so. A true understanding of the gospel should free us from performance, right? When we understand that there's nothing that we can do to earn it, it should free us from trying to earn it. And instead walk in righteousness and enjoying God forever. Right? It is only in a position of hopelessness that we will sit and wait for God to do what only he can do. Again, your salvation costs you 
You contribute nothing to your salvation, but what costs you nothing does not come cheap, and it came at a great price to God. But it was a price he was willing to pay for you. And if that lostness is far greater than any hopelessness we could experience on this earth, and God can redeem that, then whatever situation you walk in today, a crisis in your marriage, a failure of your children, the realities of your life not looking anything like you thought it would look, a sickness, If God can defeat our lostness, he can redeem your hopelessness. And we sit and we wait for what only God can do. I want to remind you this morning of this simple truth, that God loves you. God loves you, but because of your sin, you are separated from a holy God who has created you for himself. And so this morning, you, you should recognize that sin, recognize that tendency you have to walk in rebellion and repent of that sin. God loves you, but your sin separates you and, and Jesus rescues you, right? When, when the dead man could do nothing, he was carried, right? Because we walk in rebellion, we are only able to walk in righteousness if we are rescued, and Jesus rescues us. So God loves you, sin separates you, but Jesus rescues you. And so if you've never placed your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'd invite you this morning to answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? I'd love to talk with you about that this morning, during this next song or after our service today. Maybe there's just a situation in your life this morning and, and, and through our time together, you've just been thinking, God, I am hopeless, I am desperate, I don't know how this gets better. But God, if you can restore the deadness of my heart and you can redeem the lostness of my nature by making me alive, then I will trust you with my hopelessness. And I invite you to come up here and just give it to the Lord and allow your church family to pray over you.